good friends, here we are with the Warrior Poet Project podcast with a very special guest today, Dr. Chris Ryan, who has uh, been well indoctrinated into the Joe Rogan, Daniele Bellelli, Duncan Trussell <laughs> uh, circle of trust. And uh, I'm the latest installment here. I really can't wait to talk to you. Um, you know, for me, your book is one of those books that's uh, it's a game changer. It's something that really kind of shakes things up and r- makes you take a fresh look at some of the ideas that you've had previously in, in areas that you think you're on pretty steady ground. And uh, for me, that's that's one of the favorite type of books to read. So his book is Sex at Dawn. I've talked a little bit about it, but I've been kind of saving up some thoughts till I could uh, get here with you. Just had some nice talks, but really glad you could join us and looking forward to, to getting into some stuff. Thanks, thanks. Any friend of Joe's and Daniele's and Duncan's is a friend of mine, right? Right on, I feel the same is way. Is there a secret handshake that... <laughs> That you guys no, have, I haven't. <laughs> we, should, we should. I think it's. Just, I think it's a joint that gets passed around. <laughs> actually, that might be the secret answer. Yeah, the secret answer. So for me, I've been really interested. One of my favorite books is Aldous Huxley's book, The Island. Island, mm. actually, not yeah, the island. And you know, for me, building a utopia is you know one of these philosophical um, projects and hobbies that kind of really appeals to me because I. I'm very driven to try and optimize your life experience. And of course, my company focuses on the physical side, but my philosophy focuses on the psychological and, and philosophical side of how to do that. <clears throat> and I think your book really lends itself well to painting a picture of a pa- kind of a past utopia, mm. a way of living in these hunter-gatherer societies where many of the, much of the suffering that we're experiencing now was mitigated by the natural circumstances. But that said, it's hard to go back to that. So what I wanted to focus on for, for this podcast is the, you know, a little bit of the, okay, what now? You know, we understand what would make the human happy, but how do we go from here to there without using the shortcut, which, you know, a few people who live in the Alaska frontiers or some people can do, go back out to nature or create some other situation. But how do we kind of find a way to use some of the things you discuss and, and, create a lifestyle that makes sense now? Yeah, that's that's the big question, right? It's uh, it's impossible to... I look at human beings as a domesticated species, right? So we're like sheep or dogs or cats or whatever. Very few domesticated species are even capable of returning to a, a wild, feral yeah. existence. Mm-hmm. Cats might be one of the only ones, but... Uh, you know, most dogs would be dead within an hour in living in a jungle sure. or something. So I think that uh, we're we're in a zoo, and there's no way we're not going to be in a zoo. Um, but the question is, what kind of zoo do we want to be in? Do we want to be in the, the San Diego Zoo that's yeah. designed more or less to replicate our natural environment? Or do we want to be in the Calcutta Zoo where the animals are in cement cages, you know, and, and miserable? So I think... The key is to to design the artificial environment in which we are going to be living in a way that is as uh, congruent as possible with our nature. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, another metaphor that that sheds lights on this on, on this issue this issue would be like shoes. You know, shoes that are shaped like feet are going to be a lot more comfortable than sure. shoes that are shaped like some wild artistic idea somebody had, right? <laughs> right. So, like, if you want to walk far, you got to get shoes that, that are shaped like a foot, 
yeah. and that fit you right. So the key is design an art artificial environment, design um, a family, a relationship, uh, a work situation, whatever part of your life you have control over, design it in a way that's um, resonant with our nature. And so <clears throat> that can be a real challenge, especially when the rest of society is saying, you know, whatever whatever cage that they've built is the only way. And they, right. everybody wants to kind of reinforce those behaviors. Um, <clears throat> so if we're going to go take a step back, for those who haven't basically understood the basic tenets of your book, it is that, you know, human beings were designed to be in these smaller bands, you know, based on uh, a theory called Dunbar's number theory. It's about 150 people at the maximum, uh, 50 people around the minimum. These yeah. bands of people where you pretty much share everything from resources that you've hunted, gathered, to sexual partners um, across the board. Child uh, care. Child care. Yeah. And a lot of those kind of uh, same tenets, again, that Aldous Huxley talks about in Ireland, but you kind of talk about it in a literal historical sense of how this used to be. And then the advent of agriculture created this kind of limited resources, zero-sum game where you're hoarding goods and bartering and, and created a lot of the ills uh, that we now see. And then, so for me, one of the things that struck me about the book is, you know, this craving to get back to some kind of tribal sense. And I think that's almost the hardest, you know. I mean, I think a lot of people, the book, you know, makes them think a lot about monogamy and it certainly does that in an effective way but for me the most compelling part was holy shit you know I want a tribe now that mm -hmm. I would be willing to share everything I had and feel that comfortable with how do I create that tribe not just how do I create uh, you know non-traditional relationship you know but how do I create a tribe yeah and I think that's the that's the biggest question for me because that's that to me speaks to something even more important and, and crucial to, uh, you know, real happiness. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think we're, we're creating tribes uh, with these podcasts, for example, yeah. right? You know, I mean, there's, there's a very distinct community of people who listen to you and Joe and mm -hmm. me and Daniele and Duncan. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of um, feeling of community among those people, I think. And that's fantastic, but but it sort of exists on this this plane, non-physical plane, mm -hmm. right? Which is beautiful in some ways, but it's not very practical. Like those people aren't going to take care of your kids when sure. you go out of town or and something. I wouldn't yeah. give them all my bank account information. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there are definite limits to the sort of cyber community, sure. you know, model. Again, I mean, I think this might go back to the first point that we were talking about where I don't think we can ever really exist in something just like the way our ancestors did, right? We're not gonna we're not gonna eat the same food our ancestors did. No matter how paleo somebody gets, they're not gonna, you know, eat an aurochs because that species is extinct. You, you know? haven't been to Texas. To oh, do they have aurochs in Texas? You can eat the shit out of some aurochs <laughs> out of Texas. Yeah. There's probably more aurochs out there than there are in, in Africa. Yeah, mind. I don't know, man. <laughs> Texas is another issue. But uh, um, anyway, my point is, like, I don't think we can, we can actually live in a tribe. Like you said, you know, there are some people in Alaska living in nature. Yeah, but those people are alone. 
You know, those people are either in a nuclear family or a couple mm -hmm. living out in the middle of nowhere. That's not how our ancestors lived either, right? So the problem now is like you could set up an intentional community and there's some of those that are functioning and, and that's probably as close as you can get, like a communal kind of, you know, common property kind of situation. But the thing about that is people can leave, you know? Uh, so, you know, you might invest a lot of time and trust building up these relationships and then, you know, somebody falls in love with somebody in another city and they're gone, you know? So, and that wasn't the case yeah, 20,000 sure. years ago. There was nowhere to go, you know? <laughs> uh, you, you know, people joined other bands, but, you know, the, the bands were all interconnected and all that. So I don't think we can, I think we were sort of um, chasing a red herring if we try to replicate exactly the conditions in which our ancestors lived. Exactly, I agree with you. Exactly is impossible. But right. I think there's got to be a way to get closer. And I think yeah, you could do it definitely. utilizing technology rather than having this kind of you know, spatial location where the tribe right. exists. You still have the tribe, but you know, all our resources now are monetary. I mean, that's basically it for the large part. We don't need yeah. to share food. Really. Right. We can share, you know, money gets food pretty Money pretty and time. Time. Yeah. Right. So you could set up kind of a shared communal bank account situation, presumably. Right. Right. Where you guys are pooling your resources together for and some people are down on their luck, some people are up, you know, it's all gonna even out. Yeah. Um and then you could have regular meetings. I mean, but I think there would be a way to kind of start to make this work. I mean, if everybody was in this, found their tribes of these 50 to 100 people and, and 150 people, and these, these tribes had a good mix of some people who were, you know, very blessed as far as their monetary resources and right. some people who provided other skill sets, and you form these things, the need for these larger scale kind of charitable blanket contributions would go away because these tribes would start to take care of each other. You know, if society yeah. could kind of order, and you would feel a lot better. I mean, giving to charity now is this kind of, you do it because you know it's the right thing, and you hope that most of the money gets there. But then you look at something like the Red Cross and the numbers that come of actually $100 donated, how much is getting to the front lines of where you're going, somewhere between 30 and $50, a lot of the, the places yeah. are reporting. You know, yeah. And some places are even worse than that. Yeah. But if you had, you know, this kind of tangible egalitarian system where people just, you knew the people, you trusted them, and yeah. they could take what they needed, and you trusted them to do that. I mean, that would feel good for the human being. Yeah, yeah, it, it feels natural. Right. You know, it's, yeah, take care of your friends, and they take care of you. So we, we do replicate that stuff. I think, you know, interestingly, I think that there are areas where this sort of approach to life is, is coming out, um, like share economies, like uh, you know Uber, the, mm -hmm. the ride sharing sure. kind of thing, sure. or uh, Airbnb, you know, where you can rent out a room in your house, or you know, you're not using your power tools and you can like put them online and somebody can come yeah. over Couch and borrow. Couchsurfing is another one. Yeah, exactly. So I think these things, technology is enabling some of this sort of sharing economy to to happen, and there are also uh, time banks, you know, in communities. We were talking about Portland earlier. I know. Um, Portland is sort of cutting edge in some of this stuff where you can, um, you know, there's a time bank. So you could say, like in my case, I could say, well, I'm a writer and an editor, you know, here's 10 hours of my time. So somebody can then, you know, barter. Somebody can say, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a gardener. 
So how about, you know, I'll give you a bunch of fresh vegetables and you take a look at this manuscript I wrote. So there's no money even involved. But there's a way that we can find each other with and and exchange our talents and stuff. So that makes sense for kind of the resources part. But then when it gets tricky is who you would want to share your wife with. Because at that point, you know, it's something a lot more intimate even than money. Yeah. Well, that's up to my wife. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, who you would be willing to have, you know, kind of sexual, bring another sexual partner. And some of the examples in the book you use were the... You know the the Air Force pilots. Right. They were in this these kind of high risk, dangerous situations. Yeah. And you think about that as and at those point, those were brotherhood. That was a brotherhood forged from, um, you know, risk constant risk of death. Each of these people yeah. would be willing to die for the other person. And you get that kind of environment where it no longer seems like <clears throat> your most you know, what you would probably protect the dearest is and certainly not your money. Everybody would give their money before they right. would, you know, allow some kind of other sexual partner into, in a traditional sense, into their bed. Um, but, you know, it seems like in these, in these cases, I guess part of the issue may be reframing that kind of protectivism of your mate, you know. And then the other part of the issue is with the tribe, it certainly makes sense to have this kind of open sharing of even, you know, your, even your sexual partner, even your wife, even the mother of your kids, you know, because these are people who you trust to the infinite level. You've gone through whatever rituals and you're fully egalitarian towards them. But that, that I don't think you could not, you know, gets much trickier for, for the general population in some kind of Uber cab situation, you know, like <laughs> That's you right. need to really... I'm not using my wife this weekend <laughs> yeah. if anyone wants yeah. to make a bid. Yeah, exactly. Or your wife saying the same thing, I'm not using yeah. my husband this yeah, weekend. Yeah, exactly. You know, certainly can go either way. Um, but that that gets, you know, to be even more of a, of a challenging situation. But I Well, think I think polyamory, yeah. right? Polyamory is a growing movement. Uh, and I, I think that's essentially what they're trying to do, right? They're saying you can have your primary relationship, but then each of you can have secondary relationships in addition to that. And a lot of those networks end up being very family-like or mm-hmm. tribal, right? Mm-hmm. They end up, you know, like, let's say you've got your your primary partner and um, and she's seeing a guy who you know and you know you've met him and you like him and everything's on the table and he's got kids uh and then you know he's he and your wife are going out of town and you end up taking care of the kids while they're away for the weekend mm-hmm. right i mean for a lot of polyamory polyamorous that's a completely normal situation yeah. and for everybody you know once they're in that world it makes perfect sense sure Whereas from outside, you could say, wait a minute, you're taking care of this guy's kids while he's off stooping your wife? Are you crazy? And for them, they're like, well, who's better to take care of these kids? Who do I trust more? Right. right? I mean, it. so there are ways that that sort of intimacy, once you're in that world, everything seems to make a lot more sense, sure. you know, from within that paradigm. And I guess, I guess at that level, the only step missing would be that full-on sharing of of resources to a certain degree you know i mean that's just talking about the love aspect but to translate that to a very much like the tribal i mean maybe you don't need to put all your money in the communal bank account i mean that sounds a little crazy but to take that to the level like all right here we're all making money we're working with this we all have 
add that time, you know, the time bank thing to it. We all have certain time, you know, and you have this group of people where you literally share everything. And yeah, well, I know some people who uh, they're they're. I don't think they call themselves polyamorous because polyamory assumes all sorts of rules and language and things. Mm -hmm. But they're just sort of. They're a married couple who uh, are good friends with another married couple, and the four of them have been involved, like, cross, you know, sexually. And everybody's cool with it, and they've been friends for 25 years or something, and they bought a farm together. Right. Right? And they all have kids, and the kids all know what's going, you know, and actually the kids are sort of in college now, mostly grown-up teenagers. But anyway, so instead of living individually in their little houses, they bought a big property together and they've got separate buildings in the house and the kids live in the barn and, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like all... And so it's sort of like alone yet together Mm -hmm. in some financial sense. And so they've got all these animals and stuff and it's really cool because when somebody goes away, there's always somebody there to take care of the animals. Whereas if it's just the two of you and your kids and you, you can't have animals or you can't travel, right? It's one or the other. So, you know, look at a situation like that and you say, well, they're replicating some sort of tribal organization, you know, and they grow food. Like one of them's a doctor and one of them works in the garden and the other manages the finances. And so it seems to work pretty well for them. I think that's ideal. It's you know, you look at some of these examples, though, and then, you know, obviously the, the antagonist to this kind of idea will point to all of these communities that have kind of sprung up that almost always fail with the head leader having sex with all the teen girls, <laughs> and then the whole thing crumbles, yeah. you know, like it all turns to shit at some yeah. point. He decides he's God, yeah. and he has sex with all the teen girls, and then the whole thing goes yeah, to shit. Yeah, you got to avoid the gurus. <laughs> right. No gurus allowed. Yeah, you yeah. got to have that even playing field. I think yeah. the... The Oneida population had an interesting story. I think John Humphrey Noyes was the founder of that. Yeah. And he had that idea of male continents where you would have sex but not come. Right. And he managed to found a community, yeah. a polyamorous community based on that. And it worked well for a while. They still make good silverware. Yeah. It worked well for a while until exactly that happened. He decided that he was going to start coming inside people and having all the kids. And he had first access to all the teen girls. And then everybody was like, hey, well... This community sucks. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is no good, and that seems to be the way that you know when you do have that kind of guru figure. Yeah, it lends itself to that danger. But well, you see, the thing about that though it, it is that we hear about the spectacular failures, yeah. the the ones that just sort of quietly succeed. You never hear about. Yeah, you know when when Sex at Dawn first came out, I started hearing from all these sex therapists saying. You know, that's ridiculous or, 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 you know, people read the book would go to their therapist, their marriage counselor and say, well, what do you think? Maybe, you know, if we open our relationship, that would solve our problem. And the therapist always said that never works. Right. I've never seen a single couple, you know, who were happy with this and da, da, da. And it's like, yeah, that's because they're people are happy. Sex therapy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. like doctors saying, well, I've never seen a healthy person in my office. Well, of course not. They don't come to your office, man. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, you know, the open relationships and these sorts of communities, the ones that work, we don't tend to hear about them. Yeah. Because they're pretty low-key. say that all the time. I've never seen supplements be effective in treating anything. Well, no shit. If they're effective in treating something, they're not going to talk to you. Right, about it. right. And by definition, that doctor's not using, not prescribing them. Right. So they wouldn't yeah. even see them in that case. Yeah. yeah. 
No, I think that I think that certainly makes one thing. Sense. You know that that may be a practical uh, approach would be if communities would change their zoning laws to allow multiple families to live in these big McMansions that are mm -hmm. sitting empty all over the country now since the real estate crash. You know why? There's an argument that this um, fragmentation of society is an intentional economic policy. Because if everybody's living in individual little houses, then everybody has to buy a refrigerator and a stove and a this and a that. So you sell more crap, right? It's a way of stimulating the economy to get people living in smaller and smaller units. Sure. And right now, more a higher percentage of the American population lives alone than ever before. All right? we're, we're becoming more and more fragmented. So, and there are laws, in effect, to stop people from living there's, there's a law that was just uh, challenged in Utah, actually, that led to this sort of came together with a same-sex marriage um, debate. Um, it's illegal in many places for married adults to live with unmarried adults or for married adults to live with other married adults that they're not married to. There's all this bullshit with property law mixed in with marital law. I'm so thankful the government stepped in. Yeah, and saved you. people right from those right. dangers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean there are laws against drying your laundry on a rope in your backyard in a lot of the United States. Yeah, you know which Europeans don't understand. You know, so I think if we uh, we look at practical matters like that and say why can't three or four women and their kids all chip in and buy one of those big houses together and take care of each other's kids and take care of, you know, take turns cooking and share a car. Why the hell not? You know, fuck the, the stimulation, the economic stimulation. This is a way for people to increase their standard of living, decrease their costs, sure, and have a better quality of life. Yeah. Certainly makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you, you do wonder whether these forces, you know, because there's certainly throughout history have been forces that seem to be designed to control people and manipulate them in a certain way. You know, what are these, is this, you know, emphasis on marriage in this very traditional sense? You know, is this something that organically would have developed anyways, or has this been a lot of top-down pressure and stimulation, tax credits, hmm. you know, all kinds of things that make it make sense? Yeah. Um kind of pushing people towards this one model. I think it's sense. clearly a case of top-down manipulation. Mm -hmm. If you look at, for example, uh, the medieval period, if you weren't married in the church when you died, all your property went to the church. Right? That's so a subtle manipulation. <laughs> exactly. Small there. Yeah. Exactly. So if you said, no, nah, you know, I love this woman and we're going to have kids and I've got this big farm, but fuck it, I don't, I don't want to be married in the church. <laughs> well, fine, but when you die, your kids don't get your property. It goes to the church. So the only way you could preserve your, you know, inheritance rights is to submit to the church in terms of marriage, right? And then, of course, there's a whole book of rules and regulations that come along with that, and taxes and so on. So I think, you know, that's just one example, but I think, you know, we, we can see that even now, right? Like, why is same-sex marriage so important? You know, you sometimes hear people say, well, you know, who cares? Why do, why do they need to be married? They can just live together and do what they do. And I, 
Well, they need to be married because if you're not married, you can't visit each other in the hospital. You yes, pay yeah. huge taxes when one of you dies. And it's like, it's a lot more involved here than sex and love. You know, there's a lot of property law involved. Yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, the people, if you haven't been in any situation where you, you know, you're going to the hospital, you hear this, oh, they can't, can't visit you in the hospital. And you think, oh, that's not a fucking big deal. But then you actually get in a situation you know, my girlfriend had to go in, nothing serious, but routine kind of thing. And I'm sitting there at the front desk and said, is that your wife? And I said, no, it's not my wife. It's like, okay, well, you're going to have to wait out here. Right. I'm like, you son of a bitch. Yeah. Like, she, we live together. Right. <laughs> like, there's no one better suited to be in that room than me right here. I drove her here. Right. You know, but there's just this, that label that still has these privileges that yeah. certainly... You know, well, and it, not only in the hospital, they can you stop you at the border. You know, I'm married. My wife's Portuguese. Mm -hmm. I'm American. If we weren't married, it would be a nightmare to yeah. try, like for us to both live in Spain or to live in the U.S. or whatever. If you're not married, you're a tourist. Right. You know, if you're married, then suddenly you've got rights. You can live there. You can work there. Not married. Sorry, you're a tourist. Three months and out of here. Mm -hmm. You know. So let's say. For some people, these kind of revolutionary models, you know, will work and will make sense. It's more communal living, it's more polyamorous situation. What about just for the majority of people who are generally suffering? You know, I mean, you talk to a lot of married people and they're suffering. There's a certain amount of resentment built up on both sides. Right. The woman resenting the man for not being romantic and not taking the time to woo her in the way that she fantasizes about. And the man... Or she's sexually frustrated. They seem to admit that less, probably because it's more taboo. Just talking about in general conversation, you know, harder yeah. to admit that. And yeah. then the men, you know, who are basically resenting the woman for not being able to act on these sexual impulses that they feel and not even be able to talk about them or acknowledge them and you build these walls of resentment up. What are some ways that are not so radical but practical, do you think, that people can start solving these? And I, I think you, you make the point in your book, you say, you know, confront the sky together, talk about them. But what are some kind of practical examples of how that looks? Well, I think the first, um, you know, the, the first step toward liberation is knowledge, right? So the first thing people need to do is get uh, a more accurate sense of what sort of animal homo sapiens is. Mm -hmm. That's that's pretty much the whole point of Sex at Dawn. That's what we were trying to do by writing the book. Some people complain that we don't give advice in the book, but that's exactly why. We, we wanted this book to be like just saying, this is what the situation is. Yep. What you do about it, that's another book. Someone else can write that book, or you can figure it out yourself, sure. right? But So I think the first and, and essential step is what kind of animal are we? So once you get this reframing of, of Homo sapiens, then you understand like, oh, the fact that your wife is turned on by other guys is not an insult to you. Mm -hmm. It's that she's a human being, right? The fact that she has fantasies, the fact that she doesn't always think about you when she masturbates, right. dude, get over it, right? <laughs> you know? And vice versa, right? So if you're walking down the street with your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, and you notice them checking someone else out, that is not a problem unless you make it a problem, yeah. right? So I think once people get that idea in their heads, then suddenly things open up because, you know, then you get couples who walk down the street and check people out together, 
Mm-hmm. And that's a much nicer way to live with someone than... I mean, I was in this uh, hotel in Australia. I was on a speaking tour in Australia. And I remember I was sitting in this hotel lobby and there was a couple on the other side. And this sexy woman walked through the lobby. And I was watching the couple and it was just incredible. The guy was checking out the sexy woman pretending he wasn't. The wife was also checking out the sexy woman and monitoring her husband, <laughs> you know, and pretending she didn't know that he was pretending that he wasn't, you know, it was just this like <laughs> the whole circus. fucking shitstorm of <laughs> denial and repression, you know, and with Casilda and I, when a sexy woman walks through the lobby, if I don't notice her, Casilda will say, hey, wait, check her out, you know, like, don't sure. miss this, this is sure. great. You know, and that's such a, a better way to live, you know. It's like being on safari and deciding that rhinoceroses are not okay to look at. <laughs> exactly. So say, oh, shit, yeah. there's a huge black rhino. It's yeah, better not let her see me looking at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or rainbows or sunsets. I mean, yeah. you know, beauty is beauty, you know. Like the fact that I'm checking out that beautiful sunset doesn't mean I don't love you anymore. What the fuck is that, <laughs> you know? Right. So I think the first key is is just that sort of knowledge of understanding, like, look, our nature is to be attracted to lots of different people, to be interested in lots of different kinds of art, to love lots of different music. The fact that you love Beethoven doesn't mean you don't love Mozart anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. let's get over that way of thinking. You love your daughter, it doesn't mean you love your son half as much, right? So love and desire and attraction are not limited resources. It's more like a fire that the more you feed it, the hotter it burns, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if we understand and sort of reframe human sexuality and human nature in that way, that's taking a big step toward a more peaceful and uh, comfortable life. The vital step. In any of these kind of growth situations, awareness has to be the first thing. And that's, I think, what your book does a brilliant job of doing. But then once awareness comes then you realize, shit, there needs to be some action steps probably at, at some point. Maybe. 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 And, and even then, it's like, you know, people, people are always looking for the magic solution, right? And a lot of times there isn't a magic solution. Like in your business, it's, you know, there is no pill. You can't sell me a pill that's going to make nope. me healthy and sleep well and feel great and, you know, increase my muscle tone and get rid of my body fat, right? Nope. You got to work out. You got to do it regularly all the time. You got to maintain. So I think relationships are the same. There's no magic tweak that you're going to make in your marriage or relationship that's going to make it wonderful and work all the time. It's something you're going to have to revisit as you age together, as things change, as one of you gets sick, as somebody's parents die, as you have children, you know, you're constantly revisiting these things. So like, you know, I always get asked in interviews about my marriage with Casilda and I never answer because A, it's nobody's business, but B, whatever answer I gave three years ago would no longer be accurate. it's ever evolving. Exactly. So, you know, like people say, well, maybe we should have an open marriage or we should have this. You should do whatever works for the two of you now, but in a year it might be completely different, you know? Yeah. So it's adapting to, to changing situations and, and whatever experiences you have, you know? I think it's, it's, such, it's such an important big deal, even if you don't take any action at all and nothing actually tangibly changes in the nature of your relationship. Just the acknowledgement of the honesty of the situation, I think, would be so huge for so many couples. You know, for a, yeah. for the for them to be able to accurately acknowledge what kind of human they are, because that kind of 
denial and, and, and dishonesty, really, with your... This is the person you're supposed to be the very most intimate with. Right. You know, and there's certain levels of dishonesty that far exceed what, you know, the honesty with a casual friend would be. Right. You know, I know a lot of guys sure. who are way more honest, probably with me, within five minutes of meeting me, than, than they would be with their wife at a certain point, you know, just because, oh, because we're males and we can talk about right. these things. Right. Yeah, I couldn't tell my wife this, you know, she wouldn't understand. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, they got to read your book, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they got to well, kind of get at, the facts. At least the, the section called Everybody Out of the Closet. Yeah. You know, which is, the, you know, like, it's not only gay people have to come out of the closet, right? We all do. And when I see somebody who gets into a long-term exclusive relationship under false pretenses, which happens all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like guys who will tell you or me or women who will tell their women friends, like, you know, I've cheated on everybody I've ever been with, but, oh, I really love this guy, so I'm going to marry him. Like, yeah, okay, <laughs> and how long is it going to be till history sure. repeats itself, right? When people do that, to me, that's, that's paramount to, you know, marrying somebody who you know you say um oh sure i want to have kids baby and you know you don't yeah right like yeah. who would do that you right. know or or the opposite of that like you know somebody who uh who lies about having had a vasectomy you know <laughs> like i mean you, you just don't do that shit right yeah so I think it's the same thing. If you know in your heart that you are not sexually monogamous and you're going to be unhappy in that kind of a situation, you got to get that on the table early, you know, because that might be a non-negotiable. Right. I think that's the key to relationships in general as, as I've gotten older, understanding that some things are not negotiable. No matter how hot she is, no matter how much you want to be with her, some things are deal breakers and just like break the deal early. Don't waste time. It's not worth it. I think having first being honest with yourself is key to being honest with your partner. And I think a yeah. lot of people try to pretend that they're something they're not and they don't really go deeply enough to find, you know, that honesty about themselves. And then, yeah. then, so once you get to that level and, you know, I certainly have spent a good enough time talking about ways to get to your own personal truth from, Flotation tanks, as we mentioned, is one of the methods. There's some of the, you know, psychedelic medicines in the world. Lots of ways. Or just simple reflection, meditation, you know, ways where you can quiet the mind and try and get to yeah. those kernels of who you are. And then finding a partner where you can be 100% honest with them. I mean, the, the, some of the worst relationships I know are the ones where people aren't able to be themselves. They're putting some dishonest facade out. So that somehow that you know partnership works, yeah. and it's just torturous. You can see, you can see how it goes. It's torturous for those of you who know a true, you know, someone's true yeah. identity, and watching that change. And it's torturous for them because they're not expressing that, you know, in an in an honest way. And you know, the real tragedy of it is that so often that's completely unnecessary. Yeah, you know, it, people, especially guys, I think, assume that there are no women that would accept them as they truly are. Mm -hmm. And so they, they front whatever they think the woman wants. But, you know, we're a couple of guys talking about women, so maybe there are women who think I'm completely full of shit. But in my experience, what women really admire in men is courage and authenticity. Because that's the basis of intimacy, which is what 
most women are really looking for in relationships. So, you know, that's why women are, you know, love a guy who can cry or who's in touch with his feminine side and all that, because that's real, right? right. What, they, what they're looking for is real connection. So, in my own experience, when I've been upfront with women about, you know, once I sort of keyed into this aspect of my own life and, and was upfront about it, you know, some women just were like, well, thanks, I'll see you later. And, you know, fair enough, I didn't waste time with them. But the women, a lot of women really admired my, um, my sincerity and like, like, wow, okay, that's the way you are. Thanks for telling me. That's great. You know, like we've got a real basis for a relationship here. I think guys are afraid they'll never... F I get emails from guys all the time saying, yes, this is how I am. Yes, right. But, but I can't be honest with women because I'll never find a woman who will be with me. Wrong. Because I get even more emails from women saying, yes, this is the way I am, but I'm afraid I can't be honest with guys because they'll reject me. If those two people could like get their shit together <laughs> and find each other, you know, the world would be a much better place. I guess it goes to that kind of social repression of those kind of ideas. Right. You know, I mean, at that, at the point where, you know, you have any kind of non-traditional setup, and I've seen this happen many times, even with very kind of informal non-traditional setups, you have people from the outside who don't have that, who are a lot of times jealous of what happens, constantly kind of biting at it and yeah. trying to sow seeds of doubt. And, right. Well, how could you... How could you possibly allow that to happen? Aren't you worried about this? Aren't you worried? About, I just, I could never do that. I could never do that. Right. You know, and you get all this kind of... Or you get like, well, how? Could, why do you let him do that? Yeah, oh, exactly. Oh, let. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. How are you comfortable with her doing that? Right. What's wrong with well, you? Right, 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 exactly. And I think, I guess it's more of like a, something of a critical mass kind of tipping point thing, whereas these ideas spread. You'll yeah. get some of those people in that category, but you'd also get your friends being, you know, some group of friends being like, hey, good for you. Right. That's, that's authentic. That's honest. You're true to yourself. And look at you. You're happy as fuck. You know, it right. has to be working. Right. And yeah. so hopefully, I guess, as that kind of spreads, um, you know, more, it'll be easier to kind of venture out on those limbs. I think it's spreading really quickly right mm -hmm. now. I think we sort of have reached a tipping point. And I think a lot of the credit for that goes to the the gay rights, same-sex marriage people who have been, like, you know, fighting this fight for 30, 40 years, whatever it's been, since Stonewall riots and all that. You know, I think the idea that... I think the idea that, first of all, that sex is not about making babies, mm -hmm. right? Which is something you have to accept if you accept uh, gay marriage and same-sex relationships. And you say, okay, so sex isn't about making babies, it's about connecting with other people. Once you accept that as the basis for human sexuality, then suddenly everything starts falling apart. And in a way, the right-wingers who were afraid that if we, if we let the gays marry, then everything's going to fall apart, they were right, you know? Because now, I never would have said this ten years ago, but now it's too late, fuck them. So, <laughs> you know, because it's true, when you understand that sex is about establishing networks and maintaining intimacy with people, then suddenly it doesn't matter who you're fucking. It doesn't really matter. As long as everybody's happy and, you know, there's, there's respect and dignity involved, then none of that matters, you know, because it's not about creating a nuclear family, man, woman, child, dog, station wagon. It's about, it's about something more nuanced and, and ultimately more beautiful than that. 
And uh, it's funny yeah. as you're saying that you know you say sex with respect and dignity. What's happening by not having it out in the open is the opposite way to have sex. It's this sex racked with guilt and secrecy right. and these kind of pent up emotions that get released in this flood of you know seven hookers in a weekend in Vegas or right. whatever you know an affair with your fitness instructor the ongoing that's secret and weird and you know whatever whatever kind of situations are developed are typically developing situations that lack that you know it's like so this repression right. is not actually it's maybe modifying a fraction of behavior but what it's doing is it's making people are still doing it they're not going to stop having sex right. it's just they're just doing it in a way that's torturing themselves it's the same patterns over and over again right yeah. you and i share an interest in in psychotropic substances and sacred plants and that so it's the same situation coca mm -hmm. which is a we were talking about cocaine sure. earlier I think before we started recording, cocaine is... I a, always talk about cocaine with my friends right beforehand. <laughs> Don't worry about that, everybody here on the podcast. If we sound a little <laughs> agitated. <laughs> no, but cocaine, you know, is, is a fucked up, destructive, nasty Absolutely. drug, in, both in terms of what it does to the body and what it does to societies, and, right? Yeah, an individual psyche. Right. Yeah, as we were talking, it perpetuates this kind of um, self-confidence void. Right, uh, right. It gives it you this false sense, out, and then yeah. it digs you deeper, and it, it's a mess. Right. But, interestingly, coca leaves are the exact opposite. Coca exactly. leaves are healthy, they're nutritious, they help people uh, live at high altitude, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty much perfect. You know, the, the Incas plant. consider them a great gift of the gods and so on. If you hop off a plane in Cusco and you get a little, your legs go a little wobbly because you're at 14,000 right. feet or whatever. You better you get, get some tea. Yeah, you get some coca tea in you. Yeah. You're not all wired. It's not even like a dark black tea. It's less right. stimulatory than that. Right. But it just kind of evens you out right. and you start to feel good. So why do we take something so beautiful and healthy and, and balanced and turn it into this insidious, horrible chemical. Why? Because of repression, right? Yep. Because it doesn't make sense to import coca leaves to the U.S. unless you're Coca-Cola. Sure, all the risk and right. a minor benefit. So yeah. you, No one's going to buy a $50 cup of coca tea. Exactly. Maybe some people would. So if you look at societies that are not sexually repressed, sex isn't a big deal. Yeah. It's, it's casual, it's friendly, it's... I was just in Africa a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to a doctor who works all over Africa, and he'd read the book as well. And he said, man, Africa, sex is like shaking hands. It's, it's like a kiss on the cheek, you know? Women all over the place, and it's not, it's not um, uh, coerced at all. Mm -hmm. There's no coercion at all. It's just like people, if they like you, they have sex with you. It's great. It's comfortable. It's relaxing. Like, phew. Yeah. So those attitudes, you know, maybe not to that degree, but in Scandinavia, there's, you know, certainly some similar prevalence of attitudes as well. A lot more relaxation and openness about what it is. And obviously, right. with diseases, you know, you have to have safe sex. But then you look at what sex is with a condom, and it's it's a it's a massage, an intimate massage with a partner, you know, yeah. at that point that you have. But people get so many other ideas right. kind of twisted about it. Speaking of Africa, I, had a, I did a podcast with... Um, with uh, Jimmy Nelson, who did that book before they passed away. Unbelievable, unbelievable book. Unbelievable, right? Beautiful photography, yeah. yeah. So he was with the Himba people of Namibia, and they have an interesting 
um, system that I thought I would share with you here. So they have a very nomadic people and they take their herds out on these long journeys, several weeks long. And all the men go out, that's the men's job, is to travel with the herds and find the grasses and keep them healthy and then return back. Well, they leave one man behind in the village. And during that time that they're away, that man, uh, it's his job to sexually satisfy all the women in the village. And all the men know that their turn will come. And that's just kind of <laughs> how the system works. That man who stays behind, yeah. anybody who wants to have sex with him, he's there. Yeah. He's ready to go. You know, he's the designated, designated guy. And Talk of course, about a dude who needs zinc supplements. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, in that situation, you know, every, of course everybody's taking care of their yeah. kids. And it's just a, a system that works. You know, that sort of thing is really common. In, in our book we talk about, I think it's the Canela Canela or the Kulina, I don't remember, I always get them mixed up, but they're both people in the Amazon, upper Amazon, and uh, they have a very similar thing where the men go out in, in work parties, hunting parties, so four or five men will go out and they'll be gone for a, a week or so, and um, a woman will volunteer to go with them, and she'll cook and provide sexual services as well mm -hmm. as part of her you know hanging out with this right, group right. and the women take turns it's exactly the same kind yeah. of situation it's like if you got a bunch of guys out there well one or two women will go with them keep everybody happy and like you said if a bunch of women are left in the village well some men will stay yeah. behind and take care of them and then the other the other option is all right you say that's forbidden and guess what happens they have sex anyways exactly and then there's problems and then Fights, men come killing, back yeah. and war within the tribe right you know? but if you it, just allow it everybody's can be happy and they can enjoy well and there's no problem right because right. in that case those women get pregnant i don't think anybody's really worried about who no. the biological father was right so once see again that's the thing if the whole problem this whole mess of monogamy came up because of property rights because mm -hmm. people wanted to know they were leaving the property to their sons so they had to control the woman's behavior and all that but now we've got Technology has circumvented that whole issue, right? Yeah. So you can, if you really need to, you can do DNA tests, you know, if there's an accidental pregnancy and figure that out. And there are all sorts of ways to avoid any pregnancies in the first place. So now we don't need all this bullshit, right? Even for property rights. We can still have the property rights thing worked out clearly through technology. So all this anguish around sexuality now is completely unnecessary. I agree. And, and even, okay, so you take that one step farther. Yes, there are paternity tests. But the, even the whole idea of this ownership of your children, you know, you right. see it in these dads that are so, my boy, my boy did this. Yeah. No, that's just another human that you happen to provide some DNA for. But why, you know, this yeah. kind of ownership of your children, I think, is, a, is an issue as well. I mean, yeah. I think it's some, somewhat unnecessary. I mean, you should try and, yes, if you want to bring another you know, human through your family and through your, you know, kind of mentorship at that level. Great. Hopefully that's a good human who has a good life. Yeah. You know, but this kind and it, and it goes both ways where the children have this kind of obligation to their parents for, well, that was my mother. She, she birthed me. Well, guess what? That was her choice. And, you know, hopefully you guys have a good relationship, but if you don't, it's okay. You know, you're a human, yeah. they're a human, you know, we're all kind of in this thing together. These biological structures don't necessarily need to be as strong as they do. So if you want to leave your property to, you know, your children, great. If you want to leave your property to, you know, somebody else's children, that should be fine too. You know, people get these things kind of 
this is the way it has to be. Yeah. And I think ultimately yeah. that's kind of bullshit too. Yeah, I agree. And again, that relates back to a hunter-gatherer way of, of uh, raising children, right? Where all the women are called mother and all the men yeah. are called father. And so if your particular biological parents, if assuming you even know who your biological father is, which a lot of people don't, if you don't get along very well with him, it's no big deal because there are a lot of men who will teach you how to hunt and a lot yeah. of, and in, in many tribal societies, clan association and affiliation is much more important than any biological affiliation. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the spider clan or you're in the, you know, the uh, wolf clan, that matters more than who fucked that woman the, you know, nine months before you were born. Right. So this, I agree with you that this idea of biological identity is not uh, inherently more, more uh, valuable and than I any think, other. I think you touched on a really important point too, is you have a bad father, a bad mother. That's your only fucking shot at this in this. And, you know, everybody's telling you how important that is. So they're reinforcing that. Right. Idea. And because you have no other outlets, you're stuck with this kind of person as you think is your one mentor, you know, the one yeah. person who's supposed to raise your mother or whatever issue you have. But in a tribe or like an island, you know, you go and you stay with someone else for a while and, yeah. and you get that in another way. And I think that's just a much healthier way to look at it. But, and I think we have that opportunity now. It's just people would have to embrace these very kind of revolutionary ideas you know one of yeah. the one of the most spiritual kind of individuals who comes from a christian background as the son of a missionary who lived in a cannibalistic culture in indonesia which is pretty crazy so he has a pretty who wide is this a friend of you? he's a good friend of mine yeah. yeah and and very spiritual but he says you know <clears throat> one of the teachings that he really uh likes from christianity he's rescued a lot of different thoughts from christianity for me because i was obviously very biased because i've seen so much of the negative of it but his idea is, you know, Jesus said, to follow my way, you must hate your mother, hate your father, hate your brother, hate your sister. And he's saying the point of that passage is that, obviously not mean hate them, but mean that they're no different to you than, than anybody else. You know, that we're all basically the son of God, the son of man. We are God. And so each of these different, you know, relationships that you think you have, if you really want to follow the way, you got to let those evaporate. You know, they're kind of meaningless constructions at that point. Have a great relationship or don't. You know, do whatever is best for your life. If it's best for your life to have, to see that person every day and meet for supper and tea and have a talk, great, do it. Do that with your mother. If it's not good for your relationship, not good for either of your mutual lives, let it go. Yeah. You know? Yeah, one of my favorite quotes from the Bible is uh, St. Augustine, where he says, love and do as you please. Yeah. I think that sums it up, you know, if you're, if you're approaching things from a position of love, then you're not going to fuck up, you yeah. know, you're not going to hurt people, you're not going to hurt yourself, you're going to be okay, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole childhood thing, that it's interesting, you know, related back to what you were asking about earlier, about practical ways to put these things into action, it's interesting how one of the the main complaints or objections to same-sex marriage is, you know, a child needs a mother and a father, right? And there is some, some psychological uh, surveys and data that seems to suggest that, yeah, it's, kids do better if they have two parents, sure. right? Uh, whether they are gendered differently or not, I don't think really matters. But nobody seems to say, okay, 
if it's better for a kid to have two parents than one parent, what about three parents or four parents? Doesn't it make sense that it's even better? And in fact, when you look at psychological profiles of hunter-gatherers who grow up in that kind of communal society, they're much better off. They're much happier. They, they don't feel, as you were saying, like they've got all their eggs in one basket or two baskets, right? It's like if mom or, and dad are fucked up, you're done, right? I mean, you're you're going to spend your whole life trying to dig out yeah. of that hole. Yeah. Whereas if you're living in a community, okay, mom and dad are fucked up, but these other people are really cool. And so when I'm upset, they take care of me. And, you know, it's like that's a much more dispersed way of growing up. You're getting love from a lot of different places. And it stands to reason that a child who grows up in that kind of um, surrounded by love that way sure. is more likely to be comfortable as an adult in a more dispersed love situation, right? So our nuclear family replicates itself in our possessive attitude towards our partners and mates in life. It makes know? a lot of sense. You know, I have a, from a personal standpoint, my parents split when I was two and they quickly got together with other partners. So I end up having, you know, basically four parents. I'd split time right down the middle of the week. And so my father was a commodities trader. My mother was a ten professional tennis player. My stepfather was on the SWAT team as a squad leader. And my stepmother was a naturopathic doctor. Mm -hmm. So I ended up with these four really diverse, cool parents that mentored me in unique ways. That was really beneficial. You know? yeah. And people will take that for, for granted. Like you watch a show like Shark Tank and they got these five really sharp business mentors. And always the argument comes up because they join forces sometimes. Well, having three sharks on your in, with your company is better than just one. And the people are like, yeah, for sure. Having three mentors is better than one. But then you talk about parents, they're like, whoa, whoa, yeah. easy now. Yeah. You know, this is we're just talking about business, not life. Right. You know right. I mean? but, but they don't. <laughs> but they don't apply it. But you make a really good point there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Africa, um, I met my. Casilda's uh, ex-husband for the first time in mm -hmm. person because he lives in Mozambique. And I was thinking, like, it's funny how we have all these names for family members, but there's no name for your partner's ex-partner. Motherfucker is the name, <laughs> is the name I think. But, I mean, but it's so, like, in my case, so many of them are friends, you yeah. know, and sort of, I mean, that's family, sure. you know. I mean, we're, we've got these weird interconnections, but... We don't have names for them. I think we need to develop names for these people that that demonstrate how they can be part of a supportive network. Yeah, you know, I agree. I've seen it happen. Uh, you know, with with my brother actually. His, were were the, your four parents? Did they hang out at all? Or a little bit, yeah. a little bit. They were comfortable. That's you good. Know, but not you know super friendly in, in that level. Um, but certainly comfortable, and they certainly didn't try to antagonize each other. So right. It was healthy. It just didn't you know kind of play out that way but I've seen it with um, one of my older stepbrothers who has um, married a woman who had two kids with another husband and they all just babysit each other's kids and hang out right. and it's it's really cool to see how that could have gone because traditional norm would have say alright that ex-husband who you know lost his wife to my brother would be just fucking pissed off constantly want to fight and he's like nah fuck it you know yeah. I love these kids you got two new kids I'll take care of them too sometimes right. you know you can watch them and and uh, it just makes a lot more sense that way. It avoids so much unnecessary angst. Relationships live and die as organic things. And I think, you know, when we blame each other for the end of a relationship, it's, it makes as much sense as 
blaming your wife because it stopped raining, you know? Yeah. It's like things happen, you know? Let it go. I, the closest I'll ever have to kids is my ex-girlfriend's kids, mm -hmm. right? And, I like, I love those kids because I see her face in those kids, and I love her, and I also love her husband, you know, luckily. Yeah. She married a really cool guy. So, and they, right now they've got our cats, you know? And if they ever... <laughs> We left Spain for a couple of months, two years ago, and they agreed to take our cats. Yeah. That was two years ago. So, uh, yeah, they've got our cats and most of our crap in their attic, and, man, if they ever need someone to take their kids, I'm sure I'd be at the top of the list, you sure. know? I think that's the way it should be. I don't, I don't understand why people... Like, to me, a good way to know whether someone, whether I can trust someone is what their relationships are like with their exes. Mm -hmm. If there's a lot of drama then, you know, maybe they've just worked things out recently or maybe they haven't, you know? Yeah, sure. I, I really like it when somebody's okay. friends with their exes. Yeah, I think that is a good... Makes me feel relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. And, you know, well, I think we, I think we accomplished a lot of uh, what we set out to in kind of a meandering way as far as some practical ways just to make things a little better, you know? And it, I don't think it has to be these big dramatic steps. You don't have to go from a relationship to you know, being a swinger or polyamorous right. or, but even little steps towards more honesty, towards more authenticity, towards looking at the re way all relationships are, you know, can make a big difference. And then if you do end up taking these, these larger steps, I think it's going to have to be something that evolves naturally and slowly and progresses in a way that certainly makes sense. You know, I think obviously you can get in a lot of trouble if you just try to jump head first into, into yeah. something that you haven't really talked about and thought about and, and, uh, and worked out. Yeah. One of my favorite expressions is admire those who seek the truth, but flee from those who claim to have found it, you know? Yeah. So in, in my writing or interviews or whatever, the most I aspire to is to sort of like give somebody a compass, mm -hmm. not a map. Sure. Right. And certainly not a destination. Sure. So, yeah, I think the, the understanding what sort of animal we are provides us with a compass and a magnetic north. And then from there, people find their own paths. Well, I think you've done a hell of a job with that and certainly a service for humanity. So <laughs> we definitely thank you for your work and thank for your you. continuing work in that. And it's been an awesome time just hanging out with you here. And I look forward to you know doing this again. I think Danielle and Duncan might have some ideas for us all to get together yeah and have let's do that That'd be crazy fun. big potluck podcast <laughs> good and have a good time with it so yeah. thank you again my friends much love from the warrior poet project with dr chris ryan how can they find you um what's the best way to get uh you can follow me on twitter i'm at uh, chris ryan phd or my website chris ryan phd.com uh, and my uh, podcast is Tangentially Speaking. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever finer podcasts are sold. <laughs> Beautiful. Look him up. He's the man. All right, everybody. Take care.